You're listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Each week, we take a single episode of a science fiction TV series or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at episode three of Bugs. All under control. Ms. Langford, airline bigwig, is returning via corporate jet when her plane behaves irrationally, completely out of control of the pilot. Control is restored, just in time for the pilot to make a safe landing. But then, a fax arrives saying, Next time, we keep control. Signed by Icarus. She calls in the bugs which I'm still assuming is their business name, over the <laughs> strenuous objections of Mr. Todd, head of security. Todd thinks a plane taking control of itself and terrorizing the pilot and VIP passenger and then receiving a note that is clearly a prelude to a ransom demand must all be pilot error. You know what I think? The airline needs a new head of security. Unless, maybe, he's the bad guy. <laughs> they see a plane spotter being forcibly removed from the grounds and inquire about him. Oh, he's a local crank named Kirby. He sometimes breaks into the airport to get close to the planes. That's certainly suspicious. Maybe he's the bad guy. But how can he be the bad guy if the intransigent head of security is already the bad guy? They go to investigate the plane, which is in a secure isolation. But when they get there, someone is tampering with the plane. He runs away with Ed in hot pursuit. Ed is nearly killed, and the mystery man escapes. Moments later, our gang meets Richard Wyman, technical director, who arrives panting and out of breath, as if he's just been running to escape someone. Maybe he's the bad guy. But how can he be the bad guy if the intransigent head of security is already the bad guy? They learn that the plane was equipped with NAVCOM, a sophisticated, state-of-the-art autopilot system developed by a local man named Elverson. Maybe he knows something about what could go wrong with the plane. Well, I wouldn't bother with him, Wyman says suspiciously. He's an eccentric. Ross checks with Elverson, and he explains that it is impossible for his software to be hacked or malfunction because he is a genius about these things. He even gives her a floppy disk with the software on it so she can check it against the copy in the plane. Ross also visits Kirby in an effort to find out if his fax machine was the one that sent the notice from Icarus. While there, he's called away and murdered. And yes, it was his fax machine. Back at the airport... The bugs attempt to install equipment to monitor signals, but the head of security is suspiciously opposed to them investigating. About that time, another plane, this time with commercial passengers on it, goes for a wild ride. Immediately thereafter, every computer in the airline is displaying the five million pound ransom demand. Security sure is lacking at this airline. That's mighty suspicious, isn't it? Immediately after the incident, the head of security demands that the bugs be sent packing. Who knows? They might even have done this themselves. The CEO acquiesces to this suspicious demand and then turns a blind eye and secretly lets the bugs continue to work until midnight. Secretly, that is, except for Wyman, who was standing right there when she unofficially authorizes it. That night, they break into the hangar and start investigating. 
Roz verifies the software is indeed pristine, while the boys look for transmitters and receivers. Just about then, the head of security comes in and hauls them off. All except Roz, who hid in the flight service compartment aboard the plane. While Ed and Beckett get the third degree back at security, Icarus strikes again, firing up the plane Roz is on and remotely closing the manually operated doors. The plane begins to taxi with Roz on board. The plane takes off and enters a holding pattern, clearly as a threat above their heads. Ed and Ross try to wrest the plane from remote control, and failing that, Ed tries to track down the transmitter and bring the plane in safely from there. Langford agrees to pay the ransom. Wyman heroically, or perhaps suspiciously, offers to deliver the money. Todd heroically, or perhaps suspiciously, insists on going with him. Beckett has bugged both the case and secretly the money, and follows along. When he overhears a gunshot, we know we have one fewer suspect. It turns out that Todd, the intransigent head of security, wasn't so much intransigent as he was incompetent. Wyman is the bad guy, and Todd is dead. Wyman goes to his other accomplice, Elverson, who is the one controlling the plane. Elverson wanted to bring the plane with Roz down safely now that the money was paid, but Todd wants a bigger share of the money. That argument is also ended with a gunshot. Beckett tracks down and pursues Wyman to his conveniently accidental demise, and Ed finds the transmitter, learns to use a computer mouse, that's the thing with a tail, and Roz is delivered safely to the ground. In addition to, presumably being paid for their services, Langford also offers them free airline flights. No thanks, says Roz. The end. Okay. <laughs> um... Under control. What do you think of this episode, Simon? I yeah. Uh, well, I have to say, I had a really good time watching this episode. Um, it it entertained me quite a bit, and it, it's also really, really distinctly Avengersy. I mean, I've picked up a little list of things that are kind of echoes of the Avengers in this one. Okay, I I, I will say I'll, I'll let you do that, but, but I will say I actually also enjoyed this episode. It was um, it was a fun ride. That I'll, yeah. that, how about that? It's the best uh, I can say for it. A heavy handed in a few places there with the casting of suspicions around, but uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. So but I didn't see any parallels to the, the Avengers, though. Yeah, well, no, I, th- I, I think it, it's it's a it's the kind of story, it's the kind of show where the the expectation is that there will be some heavy-handed uh, hints and red herrings because there's a nod and a wink to you as the audience to say look look you know you know one of these one of these characters is going to be the inside man but we're going to you know we're going to give you a, a couple of possibilities and we're going to throw suspicion one way or the other um so that you you know you you're kept it's it's um, what's that line in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy about Arthur bruising his arm? It could safely uh, be made the subject of suspense because it was of no consequence whatsoever. It's okay. It's kind of like that, I think. It's kind of interesting that there are four people who are suspicious in this yeah. episode. Three of the four of them are, in fact, actually guilty. And sort of. and well, I mean, Kirby is in on it. Kirkby is in on it. 
because he sent the facts and he he was watching the plane at the beginning and and you know in direct communication mm-hmm. with Elverson. Elverson was mm-hmm. behind it because he wanted revenge and Wyman was in it because he wanted money. Money. And yeah. yeah. So three out of four of them were absolutely complicit in this entire enterprise. And the fourth one was the one that they threw the most shade at. And it turns out that he was just absolutely incompetent. <laughs> yes. His, and I, the, fact, the, fact, the fact that they were going so heavily towards it's him, it's him, it's him was the, the clue that it obviously wasn't going to be him. I, I, I'm going to take issue with, uh, with three out of the four being. So, okay, folks, if, uh, if you haven't watched the series four Avengers episode, The Grave Diggers, and you are particularly allergic to spoilers, then uh, cover, your, cover your ears for a few seconds now. So here's the first on my list of parallels with The Avengers. And this may be, it may be there are other episodes where this is, this is a parallel as well. But the, the most obvious one to me is in The Grave Diggers, you've got Sir Horace Winslip, who is an absolute train nut, He's got a miniature railway running around the, the, the grounds of his estate, which... Do you also have one of those? Uh, not... not uh, he's got a ten... I think it's a ten and a quarter inch gauge line. Um, mine is mine is more like one and a quarter inch gauge. But, okay. Um, yeah, okay, you know, sorry. Keep going. It, my estate isn't as big either, so you've got to scale these things down. The other thing that's different uh, between me and Sir Horace is that my estate is not conveniently located so that if one were to position a a, a, a radar blocking transmitter there, it wouldn't, it wouldn't conveniently block one of the um, 12 key radar stations that have recently been set up to protect the UK. Um, the, the key plot point in all this is that Sir Horace's railway enthusiasm is harnessed by these uh, naughty uh, security saboteurs who tell him okay. that the lever that he pulls when he when he blocks the when he jams the radar is actually going to do something else entirely which is disable all of the internal combustion engines in the UK and return us to the golden era of steam railways and Let's be honest. Which of us wouldn't pull that lever? Um, well, me, but maybe, you know, but maybe the UK. I would pull a lever to return the UK to Steam because you guys have the infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> we, I mean, it's it's not not only is it the kind of thing you'd be you'd be tempted to do. It's the kind of thing that you would actually just blindly believe because you wanted to believe it so much that you would just ignore those suspicions. It might not be true. So, um. Sir Horace, Sir Horace is your convenient idiot, and I think there is a strong echo of that in in Kirkby. It's it's rather underdeveloped in the episode because we don't get a lot of Kirkby before he is unceremoniously bumped off. But I think that's where it comes from. Okay, I mean, I, I don't I don't disagree that they were harnessing Kirkby's enthusiasm, but I feel like his line at the beginning where he's monitoring. You know, he's not flying the plane, although they imply it for a few moments. But he basically says, okay, I think they've, I think we've given them enough or something of that nature. I think they've had enough back to Elverson, who is at that point unrevealed. 
and you know he he's clearly participating in an illegal endeavor that is designed to demonstrate to Langford that they have power over them. Now, maybe he doesn't know about the five million pounds. I don't know. But he's definitely complicit in this. I think he's definitely complicit in this. He's a useful idiot who they have tricked into helping them by suggesting... Well, suggesting something that he wants to 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 hear. Whether, what does he think is going to happen? Um, I mean, I get the guy with the train and the steam engine, but what what's what is taking over planes and and demonstrating that you can terrorize people with them? What does that imply other than uh, give us money or we will do this again? Well, there's <laughs> like, a lot. I, that, that's since it's uh, a little while since I watched the episode. I can't remember what the line actually is. There <laughs> it's is only a, been an there, hour and a half since I watched it, but I still couldn't tell you what it is exactly. There, I think we've there, given them enough. I think is there is a there is a there is a line in 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 the episode about what it is that he thinks it is. It's nothing to do with extortion or anything like that. He the his 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 enthusiasms are connected to the aeroplanes. Well, um, don't you think then that 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 you could make the same case for Elverson is also not uh, is is a useful idiot here because he's not after the money he's after the the he's after getting planes to be flying automatically without humans because they can never make mistakes. I mean, he's in it for the idealistic purposes and of course the ego boo of being demonstrated as being the genius that that brought that forward. I mean, that's still a crime. Right, it's all a crime. Hacking a plane, crime. Kirkby's guilty. Elverson hacking a plane, guilty. Uh, 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 Wyman is, you know, help hacking a plane and took money, guilty, guilty. But you know, did ransom. It's all. It's a matter of degrees. But they're all. They were the no, three I, suspicious characters, and they were all part of I the don't, conspiracy. I, I don't think Kirkby is part of the conspiracy. I don't think he knows what is going on. Hmm. Well, dead men tell no tales, so we'll never we'll never find out unless they can retrieve his fax logs. Um, well, obviously they they <laughs> they kill him because that because he what he does know is what they is what they've done or what he's done for them, which and he knows who they are. Yeah, if that were, if that were known, it might lead. Yeah, exactly. It might lead someone investigating it to unravel the rest of it because. The the reason that Kirkby is a useful idiot is because he's too stupid to unravel those things himself. And as soon as you get an intelligence investigator aware of the facts that he knows, that person could well make deductions that he's incapable of. Yeah, uh, obviously, uh, and and perhaps find out that it's uh, it's not Todd. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I I don't I mean. Okay. A- any other uh, Avengers parallels? Well, I mean, that, that you're called to mind. The, the, uh, Kirk, Kirkby is the is the kind of uh, Avengers eccentric, uh, you know, Fair common enough. character, classic El- British. El- yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, and Elverson is the is the is the kind of equally um, the, the 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 passed over genius. The you know the person who has invented the cybernauts or whatever and and then you know being cruelly cast out there's a there's a general because and i think i think the because i i've 
commented already, you know, we're only three episodes in, and I've banged on quite a bit already about the new Avengers and the the kind of general setup mirroring the way the, the new Avengers work and the relationships within that. But the striking thing about this one to me is that it has a feel of the classic Avengers because of those typical Avengers type characters, but also because I think there's something very strong in this around the the kind of the locations. I mean, obviously a lot of it is, is I mean, they did actually yeah. use Stansted Airport in, in filming it. So it's, it's filmed at, at the, the air, but, but they've left, they've left the London Docklands and they are, they're kind of wandering around bits of rural Essex that are supposed to be near the airport, but they're bits that look awfully like the home county's locations that were used in the later series of the Avengers. So all this kind of um, brick and flinty kind of home counties-ness, it, it is very reminiscent of those, you know, Dead Man's Treasure and Murdersville and all those kind of locations. Hmm. One, one thing, and I think I mentioned it in the last uh, episode perhaps, but it strikes me again. When you, when you watch the Avengers, and, and it's really hard to divorce all this from, you know, my lifespan and my where I'm looking at it from now. But when I watch an episode of the Avengers and they develop a cybernaut or, or some wacky piece of technology to make you believe people are invisible or, or whatever it is, you, you, I can look at it. And even as a kid, I can remember looking at it and going, the Avengers is completely a bizarre parallel universe where nobody is trying to convince you that this is a thing. At least that's the way I always felt about it. And looking back on it, I can still watch an episode of the Avengers. Well, maybe. But but looking back on it... You got the Avengers from season four. But actually... If okay, you were British, but, you'd have been watching it from the days when it was this gritty, you know, un, under, undercover operative wearing dirty Mac, you know, twisting a GP to do his his dirty work for him. But, and, but you know that no matter where you are, Steed and Peel is what comes to people's minds mostly first not everyone sure, but my but my 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 point is that that you you may you may think that when you're when you're looking at the kind of color episodes from season five or season six but there is a continuum through the show because it went from the okay what it was in those origins through that and at some point it got so tongue-in-cheek that yes it, it was no longer trying to convince anyone that it was a, you know, that was, but it, that's it, okay. that it was anything but fantastical. But as you pass, as you pass through the earlier seasons, as you go through the kind of the the Honor Blackman and the, the black and white uh, Diana Rigg, those are the episodes where actually there are there are some still some elements of uh, it, it being grounded fantasy. That it's always been something where there is a little bit of glamour to it, but it's not necessarily pure fantastical nonsense. So where my problem then, what I'm getting at, is that in this, we have 
because we have advanced in time, the air of plausibility or the air of implausibility or, or whatever we want to call it doesn't work as well. It's not because we've it's, it's harder. It's, it's harder for me to look at them babbling on about the computers and stuff on the plane and, and accept it. And like I said, it, it's extremely difficult to divorce that from frame of reference. But, and I can't, so there's, there's not much point in me trying to. But, but, you know, some of the things that they did with the plane <laughs> seemed, uh, seemed a little um, uh, uh, like, okay, if you'd just not done that, we probably could have gotten by with it. But, you know, like the emergency doors. I, I really don't believe the emergency doors are, are electronically operated. I mean, the whole point of an emergency door is uh, you can get out without power <laughs> or in an emergency. So, eh, you know, nor would a flight control system, would a flight control system, which was designed to automatically fly a plane without human intervention, nor would it have any reason to control things like that. You know, it'd be like if the drinks trolley automatically pushed down the the uh, the aisleway to serve people so you didn't need stewardesses. It's like, okay, that's might be a step beyond the auto navigation system that fits on a 720K or 1.4 uh, floppy disk. <laughs> I, well, but anyway. I'd say, the, I'd say the, the, floppy, the floppy disk thing was, was that, that the whole attitude of Elverson was something that, that struck me as being wrong because he didn't not not only did he kind of hand over the thing on a floppy disk but he didn't have the kind of curiosity that you would expect him to have no he, he was just he shutting definitely, it down he was just saying what i've done is perfect which he 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 is what a, a writer thinks a computer programmer is like yes yes well I, where I, as a computer programmer looking at what he did was like you just simply don't say I have the most robust antivirus system. You couldn't. You couldn't hack it. Yes. It's like, no, you don't. You, I, I wouldn't even say that. I wouldn't even go so far as to say that is like you know. Rule one: when somebody is hacking, if your systems have been intruded, rule one: pull the cable, right? <laughs> Shut down. Break that air gap. That's invulnerable, right? I wouldn't go so far as to say even that's invulnerable. Yes, you know. There could be another route you don't know about. So you, you just don't make absolute statements about things like that. But that could be, you know, 30 years of, of uh, computer hacking knowledge beating it down on everyone in the industry that, no, there is no such thing as a perfect system, period, end of discussion. And the fact, the fact that he, the, the, the good thing about it, apart from the silliness of him happening to have an happening to have that on his desk <laughs> amongst the stack of hey, I got it here this is the copy of the most valuable software that I that I put together out there here take one with you and, and you go the thing about that that I did like was that it did represent what you should have done which was to compare the onboard software with a known good copy of course that's not a known good copy the airline should have a known good copy of it, right? I mean, that's you, you verify the integrity of the software that it hasn't been tampered with. That's one of the steps you should do. And I was kind of impressed that they knew that. But 
things. Like the fact that they didn't have it at the airline is like a huge major security flaw. And so everything wrong, I can go back to, oh yeah, Todd was incompetent. <laughs> right? It's like, you could make that argument with everything. It's a little bit of hand wavium. It's like, it, it, at, at, even at one point, after they totally inspected the plane from one end to the other, according to their investigators, then they said, oh, well, you know, are you guys going to check the software? As if they hadn't checked it. Oh, we checked the physical plane. We didn't check that cyber stuff. That's, yeah, icky. Or, <laughs> so, so there is that sort of, there is still that sort of, um, uh, looking down their nose at technology, yeah, in in this story. So the the kind of the the nineties concern, if you like, is is this idea that that the, the technology can 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 take it's taking over the jobs of the pilots. It can control everything, and um, you know that the hu- the human error element of it needs to be cut out because introducing humans into a system introduces error and well, he's not wrong <laughs> well no because but uh, but i think what i think what is wrong is that is that actually that's elverson's point of view elverson is the bad yeah. guy in this the story is I know. is is about is is a kind of doom watch take on that um you know we mustn't we we mustn't let the airplanes get all automated and I, and I I I didn't have a problem with the the doors shutting because I thought that was just another step in this. We mustn't let the airplanes get all automated because it might fall into the wrong hands and and you know then then where are you? You know you're stuck in a flying pub in the sky about to crash. Yeah, we're going to talk about that too. <laughs> <laughs> flying pub in the sky. Anyway, <laughs> I I you know I mean there there's. There is that. Oh, technology is going to bite you if you if you automate the planes. Then somebody could get into it. But I mean, you know, right now you just get to the pilot, and and there you go. So I mean, it's the same. There's always an error of link, but there are errors that are made by pilots. Tiredness errors. Uh, just had a fight with your spouse. Errors. Uh, you know, any number of things that could and should be compensated for in software and removing those kinds of problems is a valid concern. And so Elverson's not wrong that humans introduce errors into the system. And if there is an error in the system, it's still introduced by a human. It's just introduced by the programmer or by a, a hacker or, you know, it, it, it. I, I, I agree with you, but I, I don't think Brian Clemens does. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Did he write this one? It, well, it's his story. It's it's um it's another one by Duncan Gould on a Brian Clemens idea, like episode one, mm. only much much better. I think yes. I think that okay. may be why why yeah. we've got a lot of Avengers style in in this one. You know, the kind of Avengers trope, and you know, down to the fact that we we've got the conclusion taking place in inside a windmill. Um, you know, that, that, was that Jonathan that Creek's windmill? I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't recognise it as Jonathan Creek's windmill. It may. Do you have a lot of windmills in Britain like that? We've got a lot of windmills, yeah, especially in oh, East really? Anglia. like that. Well, East Anglia that, that... is very flat, and so 
Uh, 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 all right, let, no, let me rephrase that question. In, in the United States, a windmill is a metal tower with a windmill at the top of it that looks like something like you'd fall off at the Pharaoh's project. It we don't have building. So where, how does it how does it drive? Where, where, where do you where do you house the the the, the stones? Uh, they don't. The as far as I know, they don't grind things. They pump water. Oh well, we haven't got any shortage of water. We don't need to pump it. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah, the only windmills I've ever seen in my entire life in the United States, and you know, hundreds of them, uh, are all. So when I see something like that, I think Holland. I don't think Britain. I think Holland because that's got that sort of. I don't know. For some reason, I associate them with Holland. So when you see Jonathan Creek in one, you go, "Huh, that's a unique place to live." But I mean, if they're all over the place, maybe it's not so. <laughs> it's not so well, unique. It, you, I mean, you you do get they're not they're not all the same. They're not all the same. You get pole mills and tower mills. So it, 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 essentially, it, it depends on which part of the the. You, you, your, your sweeps have to face the wind, and mm. so they have to rotate, presumably the same as your your metal things. And so the difference is how much of the windmill rotates. And it could just be the top bit rotates on a tower mill, or it could be that essentially the whole windmill rotates on a on a fixed pole. Um, and and those and obviously then within that you've got different different uh, different types of of mill, um, sorry different different designs of, of each type of mill. But yeah, it, um, whether it is Jonathan Creek's actual windmill, I don't know. I didn't think it looked like it, but you know, I just kind of um, uh, assumed there was only like one that they would use for location footage. But I, th- well, I, I love know. how they it, tricked it, out it, the inside. It, it it just it made me think this is a, this is a kind of eccentric Englishy Avengers land type of location to use and obviously in the Avengers they did actually use a windmill though when I checked that one did turn out to be the new Avengers rather than the Avengers it was um, House of Cards so maybe not quite the Avengers but it's that it's that style of thing it's that it's that notion of being in a very unusual kind of building. Let's not blackmail an airport and remote control their airplanes from just some office or some warehouse. Let's be in some kind of real iconic um, rural eccentric British building. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's once again no doubt that that is it does have a it does have a very Britishy feel to this. Sequence. And then, you know, that's what the Avengers has. But of course, perhaps Britishy feel is defined by the Avengers to Americans. <laughs> it, it's hard to say. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, it's, it's a type of it's a type of Englishness that doesn't exist. But say uh, it, it isn't it, so. <laughs> well, I mean, just in the same way that the the world of, of P. G. Woodhouse is a kind of timeless Englishness that doesn't exist and never did. But you know that that's that's partly why these things not only appeal in the first place, but actually have a kind of longevity because they don't date, not actually being located in the real time in the first place. Well, that's an interesting thought. Oh, all right, fair enough. Facts, See, that's what I'm concerned is that this way. one is going to date. This show will date. Well, it, it can't it's help to. Co- I mean, just it's quarter of a century on, and I'm still enjoying yeah. it. Well, this episode. Yes. 
I won't say yeah. I, I won't say I enjoyed everything we've watched so far. But again, looking back at the original Avengers, if you wish the latter years, uh, the color years, however you want to look at it, um, that doesn't that doesn't date because it's kind of fantasy. This one, oh, still I... being grounded, does feel yeah the the facts, the bugs, the you know all those things. It's just I don't know. I don't, I don't know. That's it just true. maybe caught at the wrong, maybe caught at the wrong cusp of time. I think the Avengers is is quite dated in 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 some ways, particularly the later the later color ones. Some of the fashions definitely dated. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there's yeah. no doubt about that. And 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 you know, I mean, even even at its height, it it still there are there are episodes that because it was trying to be cutting edge, and those that some of them. Some of them are cutting edge in a way that um, they they latched onto something that was fleeting, shall we say? And you know, there was some very ephemeral fashion that very quickly does kind of date it, or or the, or the kind of they use vehicle. A lot of the vehicles in it are, are class, you know, Steeds Bentley. Yes, it's completely out of time, but yeah, it, yeah, because at the time it would have been a classic car, not. It's not a classic car from 1965 or whatever. So there are there are other vehicles in the show that you'd think, yeah, that is quite dated. A uh, couple of things I just put to the uh, toss out there that I've got highlighted on my list: the extracting the ident of the fax machine. I'm I'm not convinced. I'm not, no. not going to buy that one. Uh, I think that that fax machine will have the same ident as every other fax machine from that manufacturer. But uh, if you're just measuring the the frequency wavelength like they did, when it's a, it's a the unique pa- fingerprint, it's a, it's a great yeah. it's a great idea. It's again, it's it's high concept stuff, which I I think you know we didn't see we didn't see in quite the same way in the Stephen Gallagher episode, but it is classic Brian Clemens. It's it's a high concept notion that he doesn't particularly care whether it's actually based on any reality, as long as he can communicate the idea across to the audience, and as long as the audience are as ignorant as he is, it'll work. Mm. Um, one thing that, that bugged me in the, during the episode was when we saw Elverson flying the, the passenger jet, okay, uh, first off, I was amused by the captain in his announcement. Uh, excuse me, passengers, but uh, we're having a, a problem with this. Uh, it's causing some uh, slight uh, inconsistencies in our flight. So just, you know, do, do do what they tell you to do back there. It's like the plane flying up and down. People are being flung all over their chairs. It's like, yeah, try to calm them down. Good job, captain. Um, <laughs> like, they're, they're buying that one. I'm sure they're buying that one. But what I thought was when you cut back to Elverson and he's flying the plane, all I could think of is like, geez, you couldn't spring for a freaking game controller joystick for your computer? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I had no idea that that was going to become a a plot complication later in the episode. Because if he had a joystick, I think Ed could have sat down and just flown that thing in. Well, yeah. Yes, given the teaser... But it just struck me. I mean, it just hit me full on. As soon as I got him, watched him doing it, I was like, that is an incredibly inefficient way to fly that plane. When I'm sure they had joysticks uh, available. 
at the time this was made, and he could have adapted that to think. Except, the isn't the point? Thing, isn't the it? Doesn't that miss the point of the whole plot? The well, software, I'm going the there. Icarus, the, the fact Icarus, that the, the software, that software is supposed is supposed not. It's not supposed to be a remote control system that allows you, as a pilot, correct to fl- to fly from a, a another location. It's supposed to be software that lets you set parameters, and then the the software handles all of the flying bit. Yes, I I I, I agree, because what we saw was him flying the plane basically in a sort of manual way, but what. And that didn't make any... It did kind of seem like that way. It did not seem like this was a computer-automated control system because, for example, when Ed was trying to bring the plane down, if this were truly an automated system, there should be a button that says land plane, right? I mean, it it should be far more automated than what he he was doing. And yet it seemed to be somewhere between automated and manual flight control because he took the mouse and he moved the mouse around and the, and the plane starts flying back and forth, right? I mean, it, 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 was, it took the concept that they had, which is that, that Al Elverson should have been able to go circle plane and then be done with it, right? Or land plane or execute scare the passengers <laughs> mode. But he wasn't. He kind of had this sort of flight control thing going. And it, it was, I don't know, it just, it obviously they needed to have Ed have a situation where he had to bring that plane down and be dramatic. And so, oh, and it's fine, and it worked. But, you know, there really wasn't anything in this episode that actually showed that that software could fly a plane by itself. It always looked like Elverson was flying the plane remotely. Like we do with drones when we drop them on people and, and you know kill people thousands of miles away. So they, they did do that very presciently. Well, yeah. Uh, well, yes. I mean, it is, it is very much like a, a drone. And I, did, I made a, a note of the fact that it was a great concept um, in, ter- you know, in terms of an idea for a, a story. Not, not just the, the blackmail idea, which I, I liked too, but the fact that they were thinking about the way in which automated flying would work and the way in which that is reflected in the way that um, drones are used now. And, it, and the, the whole Kirkby thing may seem, you know, it may, it may seem, a, you know, a bit of a strange, harmless, eccentric, causing all this, this trouble or whatever. But then, I don't know whether it reached your shores, the, the, the news of this, but we had... I think it was several days of people flying drones around Gatwick Airport. And this wasn't just eccentricity. It's not clear. I mean, I still haven't seen what the, you know, what the, what was behind it. But, but, but there were, there was, there were drones being flown deliberately into the airspace because, um, or, you know, apparently because, they knew that that would shut the airport down. If there were if there were drones that the aeroplanes might hit, then mm-hmm. they would they would have to ground all of the flights. And it, in a way, I mean, obviously, it's there's, there are a lot of kind of fantastical elements to the bugs script. But in a way, what was going on at Gatwick there could essentially be the same story. It could it could be 
using remote control technology in the airspace in order to hold an airport to ransom. Do you, do you think that they, they succeeded and got money and they hushed it all up as a government conspiracy? I did actually hear I did actually hear about the drones at Gatwick and I did not hear of any resolution or any uh, explanation as to what it was. But I do remember seeing something about that. The fact that I get most of my news from the BBC, however, instead of American news sources, could have tainted whether or not anyone else so it might not have made saw it that information. There, but yes. So um, it, it certainly is a, an interesting phenomenon. And you're right. It does feel like it would be a precursor, exactly like taking the first plane. That's exactly what it feels like. Now, I know I'm watching a drama, but it's like this is your opening shot. It's like next time I do this, you're going to get the ransom demand. You know, not, not here's the ransom demand next time. I'm going to show you I can do it twice to prove to you that you can't defend against it. And then, and then we're going to talk. So, yeah. I, and, of course, I'm not sure what they were, the, the plane circling, you know, before they knew Roz was on board or before Elverson knew Roz was on board. What, uh, what, what do you think the threat was? Just to crash the plane? To crash the plane into 10 Downing Street? To, to well, not that they could have done that uh, remotely mean, the way what? they were flying the plane. What, 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 what were they going to, I mean, were they, there's several things you could do with a plane under your remote control that has no passengers on it. Obviously, the, the thought is, is that they can wreck that as a piece of equipment, like a drone, where you would fly it into a civilian target. Or, I, I don't know, I mean, was it going to come at the airport? Was it going to come somewhere else? Was it going to... I don't know. They never actually said. But I'm not sure they need... Because they, they didn't say what they, they were didn't going need to do to. with the airplane full of passengers either. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they just did that to scare them. Because they let it go. That was, that was just another scare. Just like scaring the VIP or the CEO there uh, on the plane. It, it was... Oh, we can do this yeah, but now. One, once, they, once they're aware of what's going on, I think they're going to be fairly scared that one of their planes is... You'd have thought that after the first one, the but the head of security still thought it was pilot error. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, the incompetent head of security still thought it was pilot error. <laughs> so, well, I mean, the first time it's like, here, I'm scaring the boss. So I, I, I appreciated the way they escalated that. I'm scaring the boss. You get the feeling. The, you got the fear. You understand it now. And then the next time it's like, oh, did I mention I could take control of these little children that are on this plane? Uh, I'm sorry, on this flying pub. And I could spill them all over the place. So think about that. Think about your liability. Think about the death. Think about the, yeah. So the third time around when they take a plane off intentionally that's got nobody on board it, they're clearly signaling this plane is going to crash, I think. You mean the writers or Elverson? Yes, the writers. Well, or Elverson. Elverson is signaling that. Yeah, we'll we'll we'll, we'll put yeah. it to his to his Watsonian uh, uh, view here, that uh, you know from his standpoint, I'm doing this so I can demonstrate just what I can do with a plane. There is nobody on board. I assume he's doing it not just so. See, the plane can fly fine by itself, but uh, which you know, I suppose, but it feels more like a threat to me. But I just I couldn't quite ascertain what kind of threat. Is the threat that the plane gets destroyed? I mean, he could drop it in the ocean. It wouldn't hurt anybody. Is the threat that he's going to crash it on the control tower of the airline to demonstrate 
how much damage I could cause. Or is he going to take it somewhere else and hit a civilian target, like a village my, or the my, local pub? My interpretation of it was that was that it was all about about the the fact that he 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 had it all under his control and that he could do any of those things and in a way well they wouldn't quite be equally bad but the least worst of them would be pretty awful for the airport because even if he crashed it into the sea that's not the kind of thing you can you can hush up so oh no 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 it would be bad yeah yeah and and obviously it could be it could be really really terrible um in terms of you know massive massive loss of life and all the rest of it and they don't know exactly how bad it is and the very fact of that is going to make it difficult for them to quantify the value to them of stopping it so they are just going to hand over whatever he asks for i think that was that was the sense i got and the and the, the fact that it didn't the fact was it didn't really matter what what uh Elverson was saying to them that he would do what we what we were then going on to ascertain was that Elverson did not intend to cause massive loss of life because that wasn't his game plan well that is also why he took a plane with nobody on it but yeah and and from the writing point of view it always seemed to me that actually the key the key purpose at that point in the plot of taking the empty plane was it wasn't empty, it had Ros on it. And they needed well, but to he didn't know that. put her in... No, he didn't know that. What I'm saying is that's the reason why this happened in the plot. And it's it's that's the overwhelming reason for it. The fact that Elverson did it is in no way contrary to his own motivations and his own... the the the, the way his character is operating within the story. So it's not... It's not a terrible transgression in that respect, but surely that is why they they wrote it in. It's also interesting that he built a failsafe into it. Disconnect it, I'll crash your plane. That was obviously, if you want to take the uh, the, the 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 doyalist view, then that's just to scare the hell out of Roz more and build more tension. Because of course she should have been able to override the autopilot. Well, fly the plane's another story, but yeah. But possibly, although I think she was in a fairly stressful situation, which which Fair. I'll come back to. The the, the 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 actually there is a thing about the disabling the the autopilot that I wanted to I wanted to pick up on. Again, it's one of these little holes that didn't really matter, but for some reason I spotted this one and it and therefore it bugged me. And sorry, <laughs> I've done it now, haven't I? It it, That's it was the fact that so I can kind of understand why you would say, if you if you disconnect it, it's 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 going to crash the plane because that's a massive disincentive to stop you messing around with it. But the whole point is, when you disconnect it, you lose you lose the link, you lose the remote link. So it it's not just that you can no longer control the plane; it's that you no longer have a connection with the plane. Which made it rather strange, right. I thought, that there was still an altitude reading on his computer screen. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> there was there was some questions uh, about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just yeah, it just that's all right. It, it was, I, I you know, I when I watched this, um, 
they made a mistake as as you and I have discussed in various episodes when they give numbers I have to I have to look to see if anybody checked and I can't say for a fact but I immediately contacted John co-host John because uh, his uh, interest in remote control flying his degree in electronics and he's a freaking plane spotter and you should have uh, made him watch this one as well I, I actually am going to suggest that he watch it just for the heck, uh, for giggles. I asked him about the 149 megahertz frequency. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. So they got, they got a guy in a tower. Or he's in a windmill, and in, he's in the center of a 10-mile circle that they're flying it around. 149 megahertz transmitter? Possible to make this work? And his answer was, yeah, kind of. You could get 200 miles out of 149 megahertz uh, if you uh, if you've got line of sight, and that's the trick. You have to have line of sight. So, in theory, he could indeed circle that plane around at a distance of ten miles. I don't know about landing it though, depending on how far the airport is away, because the curvature of Earth is going to take that beyond mm-hmm. his line oh, yeah. of sight, possibly. And then the other thing is, and of course, we have to assume that Elverson is not concerned about American. Mm-hmm broadcast laws but there are limits to how much data you can push over 149 megahertz as well typically you'd be broadcasting 1200 baud data over something like that but you can go as high as legally 19.2 k baud in the united states legally. who knows in britain the air maybe it's different but so it should be enough to get the data back and forth i mean if the whole program fits on a floppy disk uh <laughs> When you say when you say legally, though, are you, are you are you worried that he may be concerned about breaking the law? I I, I did I did make that caveat, assuming that you think Elverson cares about the law, which I don't think he does. Well, I, but, I, uh, I think but there are may, physical there limitations. Be some to how indications much in this story that suggest that he isn't actually that bothered about the law. Bothered about? I think there are. But the point is, there are physical limitations to what your your bit rate could be. Oh yeah, as law, well. laws of physics, not the laws the, of physics, but also like I said, it, it's. The, well, the only information we could get was that typically it's 1,200 baud at that frequency. Legally, American legally, so FCC legally, 19.2K is the maximum baud rate that you can push over that. I don't know why they would have a limit to how much data. I mean, if you can use the frequency, you can use the frequency. I don't know why. But there's probably something to it that says it's probably a safety issue, that it's not reliable above a certain point. So you wouldn't want to use it for transmitting data at a higher data rate. Yeah. Right. So anyway, 19.2, good old USR courier robotics modem. Um, <laughs> speeds. But uh, so, yeah, uh, theoretically sort of maybe kind of possible. And I guess he's up on a windmill. So maybe he has got a better line of sight to the airport. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't know. But it, it did feel like he was quite a ways away from the airport to me. Well, he wasn't that far because... Well, he was, yeah, we don't, yeah, we don't know how far he was because it didn't take a huge amount of time for Todd and Wyman to get to the mole trap. No, and, and, and it is. From the mole trap to the windmill, Ed, um, no, it wasn't, Ed, no, Ed didn't go to the mole trap, Beckett went to the mole trap. Uh, Ed, yeah, so... uh, Beckett, Beckett went to the mole trap, Ed went to the windmill, and uh, Wyman did both. In the time yes, it took for yes. Beckett to get to the Wyman, other and find Wyman out. Did so, both. Yes, yes. 
But yes, that's right. That's right. That's right. That's, that's, I'm sure there was a connection with it. So I was thinking, yeah. That, so in the it, so it can't be that much distance because Wyman managed to get to the mole trap and then to the windmill in the time, yeah. and it may be that they were not in a straight line. So it, the yeah. distance between the windmill and the airport may be even shorter than that suggests. So yeah, it, it's it's hard to say, and, and you know. I've, I've said this before, it'll probably come up again. The, the, the time that I visited Britain, I was surprised when talking with people that the, the relative distances between places seems to be conceptually different. Should hear people talk about, oh, well, you know, I get over to that other town you know, maybe once a month to do some shopping. And you think, wow, must be a long way away. No, it's like five miles. You know that yeah, that's, that's that's a trip to the fast food rest. That's that's a trip to the fast food restaurant around here sometimes. So no, it's not you, it, you, it's the, But we have a different spatial awareness of distance. So when I watch a show like this, I feel like these things are farther apart than they probably are. Yes, is that yes, that's yes. what I'm it's getting like, at. Like so I was Australian. thinking he was like thirty miles away. Yeah, like an Australian who came to came to stay with us in Sussex, and he was like. You know, I'm just going up. I'm just going up to Edinburgh today, and then tomorrow I'm going down to Cornwall. And it's like, you what? Yeah. But yeah, apparently to Australians, those are not. You know, he was just dashing all over Europe because it was all his backyard in terms of scale. Yeah, yeah. So it, that is one thing when you're watching these rural British things. It's like I don't know. It's like, is it thirty miles away? Is it fifty? Is it four? <laughs> I just I don't know. I just can't get a feel for it. So, anyway. Oh, yes. Have have we ever at any point prior to this thought that Ed was completely and absolutely, utterly incompetent with computers? No. Because I, I hadn't gotten that. Although, although I think it, was, it wasn't surprising to me that I, I did make some notes on, on the team in this and the consistency with the other episodes of which there have been only two. Um and and the contradiction. What one of the things that surprised me about this episode was where Ed Ed strides towards the plane right at, right near the beginning, and and you know as you said they've they've done this thorough examination of the plane except for the software, and Ed says oh it might be a might be a software issue, and I did at that point think why why have they sent Ed to go and look at the, the the computery type stuff. Admittedly, we've seen Beckett has some capability yeah. in respect to this, but essentially, Roz is the one who's clever at this. And what they what they've done is sent Roz off to see Kirkby, the eccentric, presumably in the idea that she can use her feminine wiles on him because this is Brian Clemens' story after all, and completely forgotten about the fact that she is the indispensable technical expert who's needed at the airport, whereas Ed is this kind of lunk-headed action figure who is not going to be able to solve any of these technical problems at all, as is then subsequently evidenced by the fact that he doesn't know one end of a mouth from another. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think he was that bad off with the computers. I, I, I assumed that he had... You know that he was a modern hip kind of person that was at least in with the, in with the crowd there. But that was but modern. Little... Modern hip people in 1995 were not necessarily sufficiently modern and hip enough to know how to, to use know a what computer. a mouse was. 
I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I, I knew what a mouse was. I was a nerd. But I think, I think a that's fair what I meant by people, modern hip people. I don't think I don't think someone like Ed would necessarily have had known what a mouse was in '95. Working for this organization, there were still plenty of computers around that were all keyboard driven. They may, they may not have been totally graphical user interface, um, to totally command line interface, but the the it would have been all arrows and and press enter and. Control Control C and Control T and all that. Ah, uh, Word Star. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had that. <laughs> My old we, yeah, Star we had fans. a computer that we we had a computer that didn't have a mouse. It did have a Daisy Wheel printer. It didn't have a mouse. That the Amstrad. <laughs> we did have an Amstrad as well. Yeah, the Amstrad. Uh, was it PCW? Oh, those were the days. They and they were all green. They were all green. The computers back then. So, yeah, I mean, I think the technology you're seeing in this is pretty cutting edge. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I just, it didn't, that wasn't the impression I'd gotten from Ed. I, I knew it wasn't his speciality, but I just didn't think he was quite that. Well, I, like, like I say, that was, that was much more the Ed I was expecting than the Ed who was kind of confidently saying, oh, this could be a, a software problem because he hadn't, hadn't up to that point shown any capability with the computers. But then the the, te- the team hierarchy or the team organisation or whatever you want to call it, again, seems to be somewhat in flux because I definitely got the distinct impression from the ending of episode one and from the way the team interrelate in episode two that Ros was the team leader, even though... Beckett seems to have taken on a client at the beginning of episode two without Ros knowing mm-hmm. about it. Whereas, um, what's her name in this one? The the big boss at the airport. She, Langford. She talks about Nick Beckett and his team. Yeah, I didn't even catch that, but you're right. She did say something like that. Whereas I would have expected to talking about Ros Henderson and her team. So I, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a bit wondering how... Is this a- a Remington Steel thing? Remington Steel? Oh, is that not a show that made a Pierce Brosnan uh, TV I, I, show? It was over here, over here, but I, I don't, I, I'm not going to watch it. Uh, female private detective can't get business because she's a woman, so she hires uh, Pierce Brosnan. She's, she's oh. operating under a fake name, Remington Steel, and then someday she finally has to hire somebody to, to be the man to stand there, and that's the beginning that's of the Pierce show, Brosnan, basically. Right. Yeah. So okay. He's, he's not a detective. He's just a front. So it could just be pure and simple sexism. Oh, well. That, yeah, that no, it, 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 he's, it could it Obviously, could be he's that. the boss. What's interesting about it is they don't explain it. So at this point, when we, we still don't really have any sense of how, you know, how the, how the team, what their status is, you know, are they a, are they a, completely private outfit just doing freelance work are they getting any government work you know all of that hey their names are out there people are coming to them to hire them in only two episodes that's pretty good so it would seem so yeah you're wondering how you know how how that's happening and and who who it is who's getting them the work i mean maybe that's how maybe it's maybe it's because beckett as a as an ex-operative has some contacts 
and he uses them and you know for convenience it's better for him to say this is my outfit or you know because because it's him they know but again it's just why what how why why don't we know more about this it's it's a bit strange if only we could see their business cards well whether it says bugs on it well and it could also give their names and their titles oh yeah what like i mean we get we get all sorts of stuff (laughs) rosalind henderson ceo bugs that kind of thing yeah yeah exactly yeah well yeah that would be good that'd be good ed something or other yes lunkhead (laughs) daring do (laughs) daring do and and uh and piloting services (laughs) we have our own computer expert we have our own spy and we have our own pilot and daring do guy so yeah (laughs) well i think yeah i mean it's in in theory it's a reasonably complimentary setup. It I just seems to be they don't necessarily use the skills that they 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 don't they don't necessarily assign the, the, the jobs to the person who has the skills that they've previously established. So I'll, I'll ask other... one more question. Oh, go ahead. No, go go. I was just going to say that I've just got one more note uh, relating to the team stuff. Um, and that you know that the whole interpersonal dynamic that's going on between our three leads, which is that there is once again and again it's I think a new Avengers thing. One member of the team is in peril, and the and the others have to come to their rescue. And and so this week it's Roz's turn to have a near death experience. Oh right, it was Ed last time. It was Ed last week indeed. What's quite painful about this is the extraordinary lack of empathy they have for her because the way she plays it is very much i am i am in i am in fear of my life here i think i think the dialogue in this episode is actually i mean i'm astonished it's duncan gold again because i think it's terrific there's some really there are some really good lines in it but the way she plays it even though there's a little bit of jokiness in there is is very very truthful in the sense of she she is portraying someone who genuinely thinks that they are going to die and she's terrified about it and Beckett has no empathy whatsoever he's just like oh come on Roz you know you gotta gotta come up with the answer here come, come, stop messing about stop messing about yeah I mean but but to be fair Beckett does not emote no so I, I haven't seen anything yet to tell me what his range is, other than, you know, very. I think flat. I think he's yes. I think he's he's maybe limited on that score, but um, it 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 struck but me Ed as was a situation. Much it was a situation where that no neither, neither neither of them had much sympathy for her. They, it was it was almost like it was almost like Jesse Birdsall and Craig McLaughlin were in a an action hero film where all you focus on is the is the daring do and the witty quip when you're in danger and therefore they can't actually empathize with the the idea that there is there is there is real jeopardy from the point of view of Ros in this i i would have said trying to be generous that my my take on it my read on it was simply that they were at least in terms of what they were saying to Roz 
trying to put on a stiff upper lip to keep her from panicking any more than they needed to. I think that's probably you know, quite the, generous, the f- yes. Um, but you're right, because it didn't, it, didn't care, it didn't carry that they had, oh my God, she's going to die, look on her faces while at the same time saying, all right, Roz, stay calm. Everything's going to be fine. We're working on this from this end or anything like that. There, there, was, no, there was no dichotomy there. It was just they were flat. Yeah, but not And it did decrease the jeopardy because I never thought for a minute she was going to actually die in this episode. No, obviously she wasn't she wasn't going to die. I mean, it's not spooks. It's 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 one of those shows where you know that your heroes are going to come out of it at the end. But it's still it's still an odd an odd reaction, I think, because as you as you say, they they neither go for the kind of buying into the panic but nor do they go into uh, nor, nor do they go into the competent calmness that might be right. how you would talk someone down who is in a situation like that they're actually quite snippy as if yeah they are actually a bit stressed about the situation but they're incapable yeah. of actually reflecting the the emotions that they're feeling but they're also sufficiently lacking in competence to be able to, whilst being aware of those, switch into a, a kind of, as you say, a, a, a keep calm, think about this, focus, you know, focus. It's it's helping her focus. That's what they should be doing. That's what you would hope they would be doing. And actually sort of saying, oh, oh come on, you know, you, you can come up with a better answer than that. It's not helping someone focus. It's just impatience. And, 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 and of course, carrying that a step further, when they come to the end and when Ed talks her down, what is practically the very first thing she says? I hope Beckett's doing something. <laughs> right? I mean, it, yeah. th- that is not what I would be thinking <laughs> at that moment. Uh, that, is, that is not where we would go. But that goes back to that kind of quippy, uh, quippy banter thing that, that just is too too composed for what we should have seen there. But anyway. Yeah, although uh, I mean I think it, it, the quippy banter works when when yeah, it's when when it when it's appropriate and when, and not only that when they when they sell it. The the line that Ed has I love mice at the end is terrific and he he delivers that perfectly because it's not just it's not just a funny line. It's the relief that he has because he's just come out of a stressful situation. And so it, it's, a, it's the release in the humour of it, both mm. for him as a character and for us as an audience that makes it funny. Yeah. So uh, the, actually, I'm, I was lying. There's two things. One is I could not understand, and I know that there's, you know, they're trying to cast suspicion on, on, uh, this head of security but there are two things wrong with that i not one moment ever thought he was the villain after i saw uh wyman run in breathing hard after being chased by ed and cannot believe it they didn't know that from that point on and second because it was todd chambon or tom chambon who is always a bad guy uh <laughs> so it was like oh eh, <laughs> that guy okay yeah he's the bad guy so that one kind of Passed it for me, but but it's the scene where 
head of security says, no, I want these people out of here. And you're you, my boss, you're not going to not listen to me. Right. And she says, all right, well, all right, fine. I'll let him go. And then he walks off and he goes, okay, no, no, you guys can stick around for a while. It's like, what was that about? How about you're fired? Go away. Would be the right (laughs) response from the boss. It's like, you haven't done anything competent so far. In the course of this investigation, you haven't come up with any ideas. You've let them get on board our planes. You've let them get into our computers. You've let them put all this stuff. As a head of security, you need to be not giving me ultimatums. Like, Except what's you your threat? The You're going to quit? Is, and therefore, you don't know where the power lies. Well, they did ask him at one point. She is, she is your boss, right? And he said, yeah. So, yeah. Yes, but that, anyway. that's different thinking you know i yeah well i just thought that was an odd an odd sequence that just it it didn't need to be there it it didn't it didn't need to be there and then the other thing that we have to talk about is a plane is just a flying pub pub where you where you relax wow was that what planes were like in 1995 did you see the leg room when those people were being flung around with their babies and stuff on that plane they must have had three and a half feet of leg room between those seats well, there and, you go. And, you know, and, and, and people do, got, got on planes and enjoyed themselves? What the heck? <laughs> like, I can't remember that age. I can't remember that ever. I, well, I don't, I, I don't think that Ross had flown very much. Okay, to be fair. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, just a, it's just a flying pub. Really? Wow. I liked it. I thought it was, I thought it was a good line. It was a funny line, but it was it really was out of touch with what flying is actually like. <laughs> it's the most miserable experience I can I can think of, short of having you know some sort of medical procedure being performed or pain inflicted on your body. Yeah, but I kind of think that was part of the point. I I, I don't have anything else on the episode. I I I'm not I, sure I had that much. <laughs> I I also I have to say um, you know. It, Despite the plot holes that, that you mentioned and the, the kind of very obvious pointing out who may be a villain or who may be a red herring, the thing, the twist that I didn't see coming and did enjoy was the backup bug. Because when he, when he said he'd got a backup, I thought that he'd bugged the spare suitcase. And I was like, I was racking my brains as to how he had, how he... What? How he could possibly have contrived that. Okay, now wait a second. Now, you, you say you haven't watched this for a while. So here's what happened in that scene. He is, he brings the case and he sets it down. It's in front of Wyman and Todd and yes. uh, Langford. Okay. And he says, we've bugged the case. We've got the thing. We've got the transmitter. We've got the thing. And then yeah. he's holding a stack of money and he says, and as a backup... And then Todd grabs that money from his hands, tosses it in the thing, and starts loading it up. Says, "Let's go." Oh, I missed. So that. I knew it, I knew the money was the backup all along, because he oh, was just that. about to explain it to him. He was just about to say to the two most obvious suspects for inside men. He was just about to tell them where there was no suspicion on the part of Beckett the spy, that there was an inside person here in this organization. Oh, well, I liked it how I watched it, because, because I, I, hadn't, I hadn't twigged until 
at the end and he's holding he's holding the money and you think why is he holding that banknote and then explaining that it's the bug and you suddenly go oh right okay there's not a a kind of very contrived and absurd absurdly written way in which he was able to track them after that it was it was actually a bit of clever thinking on his part maybe not as clever as i'd hoped from what you've just told me but he he was about to spill the beans to the two bad guys. I mean, yeah, he already spilled it about the case. That's which, not smart. Uh, but it it does actually lead to the fact that nobody there, Ed, Roz, nobody, seemed to have any suspicions. Even though Todd was such an obvious, you know, I'm doing everything to keep you from investigating this. Yeah. And they seem to have run of the airport, run of the security lockup, run of the computers. Huh, who is the obvious candidate? No suspicions whatsoever at all that part actually was a, a, a one of the probably the most glaring flaw in this is that they didn't come off as very bright in that respect as investigators but oh well i guess uh, that is it i don't know what the next episode is off the top of my head down among the dead men down oh yes yes something to do yes yes i did see that all right simon thank you for joining me it's a pleasure as always And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. There are over 500 previous episodes available at FusionPatrol.com. Come join the conversation on Twitter, our website, or Facebook. Find out how you can become a supporter at Patreon.com slash Fusion Patrol. Supporters get early access to all regular episodes, bonus episodes, and more. There's even an optional podcast series where we're looking at the classic TV series, Babylon 5. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, we will be looking at the Big Finish audio adventure, Space 1999, The Siren Call.